Jason, we missed you last week. Apparently, we did okay. Ellen <laughs> said, bring back Jason or we will never, never dial in again. I, I got a few of those emails. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Yeah, I think we can start. We had an OPEC meeting going to the very last page, Exhibit C. We had an OPEC meeting, which didn't increase the price very much. The next time this schedule gets redone, surplus capacity is going to be more than 2.8. Starting in July 1, it'll be another million seven hundred thousand barrels. But that doesn't seem to do much more than hold rent in the $70 range. So I think I think these demand numbers are are suspect. The largest increase in demand as you can see here a 23 versus 22 or 24 versus 23 is China at around four or five hundred thousand barrels a day. Uh, Europe's flat. U.S. is up 100 or 200,000 barrels. And I think that's the problem. It's almost China. Everyone says the other populous country out there, India, will make up for it. But look at the difference in oil demand. In this year, China's around just under 16 million barrels a day. And India, with the same population, is a little over 5 million barrels a day. So, you know, it's a kind of a hold action, I think, that OPEC is engaging in. We want to get through this stuff pretty quickly because Mike and Jason and I have some other interesting things to go through. On gas, which is Exhibit B, the gas market needs heat. Basically, LNG is supposed to go up two Bs a day per year. And power, which if you look at the chart, is 35 Bs a day in 23 versus 33, and then 35.5 and 36. I think there's a fair chance in 24 and 25, when this chart gets redone, it'll be more than half a B a day increase. Power is behaving quite well. and. Here's the interesting thing. When everyone talks about gas being better, you know, higher pricing, getting back to at least halfway back to last year, they talk about LNG, but it could be in 24 and 25 when LNG demand's going up, you know, two Bs a day or one and a half Bs a day. It could be that possibly doing the same thing. That will, that will really help. The other, the other residential commercial is generally pretty flat. Industrial is pretty flat, so I'd be very welcome. Exhibit A on the cash flow statement for the U.S. government, the debt ceiling is going to definitely, if you look at the all other, in other words, take out Social Security and, and Medicare, Medicaid, defense, and so forth, and interest, and you get to all other, which was 
910 billion in 2019, the year before COVID, and a trillion four in 23. I think that trillion four is going to go down by about 100 billion or so because of the changes that were in the debt ceiling rule, and that will help. The key is to have the debt held by the public not be more than GNP, and you can see the 24 forecast for GNP is 27 trillion and or 27.3 and the debt held by the public is 27.4 it won't make that much of a difference but saving 100 billion a year uh will make some difference so it's not a very good picture but it would be terrific to have us be able to hold that that debt held by public to gnp at 100 100 percent that would be a good outcome the other thing I'd like to cover quickly is there are two new companies in the 20 pages. One is Five Below, which is on page 20, the Uber page. It's something I've owned for a long time. I was looking, frankly, for something that was like Fastenal that could grow with free cash flow and uh, own the stock at around 40 and it's $180 stock, so I can't really complain. It definitely has slowed down a bit. It's trading for 35 times free cash flow, which is pretty full price. So finding things like Fastenal is worth doing. And if you turn to uh, page 14, I fit Fastenal in with on the cat deer page. And last Wednesday, Transdime, which is another really high performer and they're different in that they don't pay a dividend and they don't buy in their stock. And you see their debt at $19 billion. What Transdime does every two or three or four years is it pays a big dividend out, special dividend. So they pay down their debt over time and then they reborrow and pay a special dividend. It's been a terrific stock to own. Fastenal is is different. Fastenal pays the dividend, and for a while they were pretty busy repurchasing their stock. So uh, Fastenal's free cash flow was a billion three, and they paid an eight hundred million dollar dividend. So they accumulated cash. Uh, they have extra cash on hand. But when I say, well, there's five below or other companies. If you can grow and have free cash flow, not have to issue additional stock, you can get some remarkable results. And Fastenal has been public for about 30 years. If you invested $9,000, in other words, you bought 1,000 shares when it came public, uh, you now have, between dividends and market value your stock, something north of $6 million. So if you can find companies like that and, to, and, and have the courage to hang on to them, it's a great way to add to your net worth. So I don't think at 24 times free cash flow, you can see they have some growth in revenue, some growth in free cash flow. Obviously, they're, they're, they sell nuts and bolts and, and washers and other products to small businesses out of about 2,000 stores. They're a well-run company, but I don't know that it's, you know, it's been a great investment. I, I think I, whether it's going to be a, even a good investment going forward is, is another question. 
same point, I think, on Transdime. I mean, these are good companies to follow to see that there are different ways to make a lot of money for the stockholders, not necessarily something to do now. Just want to pause and see if Mike or Jason have anything to add. That's why we like putting together that super compounders list, because you see that patience pays off. And oftentimes the right thing to do is nothing. And if you can manage to sit on your hands long enough, sometimes that actually will work out far better. I've got something interesting since Jason wasn't here. And since I did a, a, a little bit of discussion along this line with Mike, Mike and I talk for about 20 minutes every morning, early his time, 5.30 his time, 8.30 my time. Jason, I, I hiked out an hour yesterday to look at three companies, Apple, Tesla, and NVIDIA. And what I was trying to do, and what I, the reason I picked those three companies to look at is I thought to myself, in those three companies, there is a case in each of those, I think, for a step change. By, by step change, let's talk, turn to NVIDIA first. NVIDIA is on H3. You can see these numbers need to be updated, but their free cash flow <clears throat> through the end of their last fiscal year was around $4 billion. It's been higher in past years. And, you know, I think there's probably a case that you can get that back to eight or something. And, and so the question is, with people needing their own wanting to control their own large language programs and and their own, you know, in effect, either through Azure or uh, Amazon Web Services, their own, you know, in effect, not use someone else's large language model, use their own, you know, could that, in effect, double NVIDIA's free cash flow? The other one, and these two are on page one, Apple and Tesla, Tim Farley, the CEO of Ford more or less admitted in an interview, he said, I don't think Ford or any of the other car companies going from gas engines to EVs are going to be able to replicate what Tesla's been able to do with their subcontractors and their current manufacturing. Kind of a striking commentary from the CEO of another company. And Apple, this vision, this headset, Maybe a bust. I mean, we don't know, but Mike and I'm sure Jason will comment on this. It's possible that they have another product on their hands that maybe not right away, but in several years might be third in line. I mean, they'll never make as much revenue or operating income as they make from their iPhones and second in line are their services, which continue to grow, but it might be bigger than their Mac or bigger than their laptops and you know does that even though you have a company trading for about three trillion dollars with you know like approaching a hundred billion of free cash flow you know would that represent a step change and i'd like to spend most of the rest of the 30 minutes hearing jason first and then mike on you know our step changes in those companies feasible then the next question of course from a market point of view is that already worked into the stock price? But over to you, Jason, on step changes. What do you think about those three companies? Yeah, I'll start with NVIDIA. I think, you know, with 
with their latest guide, you know, on quarterly sales, we're seeing that step change. And you brought up a good point where companies will want language models trained specifically on their data, but they don't want that data out there in, in Microsoft's hands or Amazon's hands. And what NVIDIA really has been selling lately is a data center. You know, they're not really selling graphics cards. They're not really selling servers. They're selling you a prepackaged data center with networking and, and everything that you can, you know, put in your own facility. A number of large companies have prohibited their employees from using ChatGPT and other language model services out there for fear that they'll put company proprietary data there because these, these cloud services will use your, your inputs that into the model as, as training data for future requests. So the potential there is their data could leak out. So, so they're very cognizant of that. And, and because of that, they're going to look to NVIDIA to, to install, you know, essentially a data center that will run their own language model on their own data. And then there's no fear that, you know, these, these models where you can't, you can't necessarily predict the, the outputs from them. So you'll control your data so that it doesn't leak out. And, and we're seeing the power of these language models uh, from, from everything. Uh, you know, I think the first use case we've seen is software development. Engineers get five, ten times better at writing code when they have, you know, this co-pilot feature. Essentially, you know, another set of hands writing code for them that's much faster at typing than humans are. So I think that's going to... That's going to expand into a lot of other use cases and industries, and you know, because of this fear of leaking proprietary data, they're gonna they're gonna buy their own equipment. I guess I'll jump to Apple next. I don't see this as a step change necessarily. I think you know, Apple sells something like two hundred million iPhones a year. This and then the price of the the Vision. This vision product, this this VR product is about three times the price of an iPhone. They're going to have to sell a lot of these to move the needle. Um, and I just don't think the market's there today or even maybe in the next couple of years. It's it's definitely a, an innovative product. Um, Mike and I have been exploring, you know, just talking through how it could replace essentially your desk <laughs> and, and, and move with you anywhere as we're kind of more mobile now as a workforce and, and work from home. You know, this will replace your, your two monitors on your desk and it'll replace movie screens, all that. So there's definitely a, a case where this does get adopted and becomes like the new, the new platform for computing, but I think that will be slow. Well, the one thing I was pleasantly surprised with in the product is how it kind of prevents you from being isolated from the real world. Watching the demos that the Apple produced, they, they've come up with some clever ways to keep you in touch with your, your immediate surroundings in the physical world. So I, I think that really ups the, the likelihood that it gets adopted. Um, but the price point, the price point's really high for a consumer product. I think it will have to definitely be a, a professional product. So for those reasons, I, I kind of don't feel like it is a, a step change for them. Tesla, on the other hand, as you said, they're, they're in, incredibly efficient at building cars and every year they get more efficient and they sell more cars and the big news out here in california is is the model three now uh qualifies for the full government subsidies both state and federal and i, I believe it's the only ev that does so now you can get a model three for 
somewhere in the mid $20,000 range. And it's, it's less than, you know, like Toyota, Toyota Corolla. So it's really becoming competitively priced and, you know, you can do your math and, and whether it's cheaper to drive a, a EV in California than a gas powered car or not, it's certainly the future and it, it's looking like the future and, and it's definitely more efficient. Why don't we have Mike uh, start on Tesla? The, the validating comments from Farley is, are uh, pretty, I, I didn't expect it to come from an auto in, industry executive. Um, so it's what we've been seeing. Uh, Tesla has been kind of dreaming bigger and different than all the traditional automotive manufacturers. They've been willing to say, how do we produce a product that we can mass produce and get our cost of goods way, way down on? I think traditional automakers have been focused the last couple of decades on a suboptimal maximum in that they figured out that they could probably get like 300,000 units out of a, a model run. And the more frequently they change the model run, they could get buyers to convert or upgrade. And with that came feature bloat, you know, lots of additional sensors and all, you know, the latest touchscreen displays and all that stuff. At the end of the day, people just need a car to get it around from A to B. Tesla is able to deliver pretty much all those features in a standard platform. It's most expensive features you pay for in their software enabled self-driving and all that stuff. So they're able to deliver the, the get you from point A to point B efficiently, safely, et cetera, for less than anybody out there. And, you know, as Jason and I both being sort of car guys, we sort of miss the past where the design of the cars would change more frequently and the, there are lots of different models on the road. But I think the, the reality in the future is that it's going to be more like the cell phone market. And uh, most people are going to drive Tesla Model 3s. <laughs> you know, there'll be some premium vehicles available, but uh, I'd expect to see a lot more of the same on the roads. And I, I would add, I, I think it's kind of interesting that they they don't have that annual cycle of, of refreshing the product. They kind of change it at will <laughs> and upgrade it when the technology is ready instead of, um, you know, waiting, waiting until the next model year. Yeah, I, I consider Tesla more of a disruptor. And Hunt and I talked about this a little bit this morning about the difference between a disruptive and a sustaining innovation. A lot of Tesla's business model has been disruptive to the existing automakers. One in going with electric, something that not people, not many people wanted to adopt in, you know, 2012 or whatever. People thought that was kind of a crazy, wacky idea, and only people that were really interested in the idea of an electric car would buy it. And then it was okay, environmentally conscious people buy it, and it slowly over time, the cost has come down, and regular people say okay, this electric vehicle actually ticks my boxes better than, than a gas-powered one. And it's cheaper maybe to operate or about the same. So all of a sudden, it's in the everyday conversation for all people. You know, I still kind of think today, for most people, owning a gas car makes a lot of sense. But in general, Tesla's come out of nowhere over the course of, they've been public for, what, 15 years? It's taken a long time to get there, but by slowly chipping away at getting 
to parity with with regular gas cars. And now I think most most automakers, aside from some specialized vehicles where electric is not a good application, are under a pretty significant threat. They've done a pretty good job, too, of making the batteries in the U.S. And I noticed a big push on utility-scale batteries to try to even out power supply. So that's very impressive because China otherwise pretty well dominates battery manufacture. Of course, for their Shanghai facility, I'm sure all those batteries are coming from CATL or BYD. Or actually, I, I think they're. I think they announced that they're going to build their own battery factory in China. So it's all, all very impressive. Mike, do you uh, think that there's any way taking taking Jason's point that the three thousand dollar, thirty four hundred dollar price point is awfully high for the Vision product? Do you think? There's any way that it it becomes standard issue for for business use, and you know, so in other words, people rather than relying on Zoom calls would rely on communicating with each other with with their vision headsets on. And so you might start selling several million of them just for business use, or do you think that's just way optimistic? I don't think it's too optimistic, but I, I do think that the way this is going to work is Apple releases a pretty polished product into the world, and there's a bunch of potential use cases. It's business productivity. It's the traveling business person that can't lug around big computer monitors with them. It's the team that's fully remote. All of those types of things, they'll add up to a million units pretty quickly, I think. But then there's other use cases that we haven't even thought of. There's the obvious ones like gaming that are being addressed with other products on the market. But there's other use cases that aren't totally clear yet. And I think that it'll just take some time to get there. And what what's really cool about Apple, and, and the reason this was released at, at WWDC, it's their developer conference. In order for this thing to be of interest to lots of people, there need to be applications that work for them. So you you can imagine that Zoom is going to build an application for this that will make Zoom meetings better for people that use it. But there's tons of developers out there coming up with new use cases and ideas and ways to improve things, and they're going to end up in this product. I, I was really skeptical of this thing leading up to it, and I've kind of completely capitulated on it. I do think it's realistic that people will replace their desktop computer with it. And Jason sort of alluded to the fact that because you can see the real world while you're wearing it, it won't be as weird for an office to have a bunch of cubicles and everybody plugged into these headsets because they'll still be able to talk to each other. And, you know, it's not like you're, you're masked up and can't see what's going on in the real world. So I, I think that they've solved a lot of the little problems with the existing VR solutions and the benefits are, we'll see, but I, I don't think they'll have any trouble hitting a million units in the first year. Oh, I should also add that the price will come down over time. It's going to get lighter, and it, the price, will, they'll probably have multiple different models, and maybe the one that is out today, hardware-wise, seems to be fantastic right now, but as these things go, the performance tends to get better relatively quickly. Apple, of course, is the law of large numbers, but it's trading for 25 or 
so times free cash flow. Tesla's uh, 50 or 60 times free cash flow on Netflix, depending on what you, as Jason says, if they do $11 billion of revenues next quarter, I mean, it's probably, it's free cash flow is probably, I don't know, but it's probably in the Tesla range, maybe 60 or 70 times free cash flow. So while it may not be as much as a step change for, for Apple, Apple's a little less expensive than uh, Tesla and NVIDIA. The, the issue about establishing your position or adding to a position in Tesla and NVIDIA now is you're paying a pretty full valuation. So Mike earlier said these compounders that wind up going up 20 times or more over time, some of those you get into at a, at a level that's high and you have to have the confidence if, if they go down from there to buy more, or at least not sell your position. So some amount of investing is trying to learn to be patient. Uh, we still have five minutes left, and Mike and Jason put a lot of time, and I've put some time into the biotech companies, and this would be page 15, and we started looking at Moderna and BioNTech because of their ability to use messenger RNA technology to produce those COVID vaccines. It took a while to clear them through trial, but I believe it's the case that the Moderna scientists and engineers and the biotech service engineers had that figured out within a few weeks because of all the work they'd done prior. I haven't met anyone who wants to take a vaccine shot now, so it may be that these revenue levels that we have on page 15 just are not going to happen. But there are two companies on page 15 that that are generating cash flow and and have upside. The one we haven't talked about as much is Vertex. We've talked about Lantheus as much. Mike and Jason have found these two and have, have really dug into them. The interesting thing to me about Vertex is they're sitting there with 11 billion of cash. I mean, Moderna, after all the COVID, is sitting with 10 billion of cash, and BioNTech is sitting there with $18 billion of cash. But the difference between Vertex and BioNTech and Moderna is that they have pretty healthy free cash flow, say about $3 billion a year. And that 10 or $11 billion of cash, I believe, has mostly been earned rather than sometimes you'll see companies like Snowflake where they overfinance, whether it's their IPO or private equity financing, and they hang on to the cash balance. Vertex cash balance, I think, they've earned over time. But, Jason, we've just got three or four minutes left. If you add some more to my description of Vertex as a performer. Sure. So, so Vertex's core business is uh, treatments for cystic fibrosis, and they generate a lot of, of free cash flow from that core business today. We view that, I view that as a very durable business. The only big competitor they had in that space was AbbVie, who just recently announced within the last couple of weeks that they're, they're canceling their CF program. They had a number of trials go through clinical studies with kind of disappointing results. So rather than try to take on Vertex and, and push forward with that, they ended up scrapping their whole program. So now, now you have Vertex with with cystic fibrosis treatments as their cash cow, and, and they're kind of the only player left in the game there. So I view that you know, as, as, as a pretty durable line of business that's helping them finance a couple of key programs that they have going forward. 
Uh, and we've, we've talked about a, a couple of those being the, the excess cell cure for sickle cell anemia. I think that one gets the most press because it's, it could potentially be the first CRISPR treatment in market. The, the next big thing they have is a, a non-opioid acute pain treatment. So potentially that could be used in hospitals in place of anywhere you would normally prescribe opioids. And, and that'd be a, a big game changer. The government's really pushing for that. They've signed a, a bill into, into law that would cover the additional costs for something like this over what it costs to prescribe an opioid. So there's a couple things that, that are out there. We, we see Vertex's low downside and, a, and, a, and they have three things in the, on the horizon that are pretty big upside. Mike, do you want, in a couple of minutes left, do you want to just cover Lanthius and we will we will be speaking about these more in, in, in the future. One interesting thing is that if you believe in Moderna and BioNTech, Moderna's spending $3 billion in, in R&D, BioNTech spending a, about a billion and a half. Vertex, has, with extra cash flow, so it's entirely financed, is spending $2.6 billion. So it's, it's very impressive from a cash flow point of view. But over to Lanthius, Mike, just don't want to mention it, not have a bit of coverage on it before our time runs out. Sure. So what we liked about Lanthius is that they made, maybe you could call it a surprising acquisition. And that's what kind of tipped us off is why is the sleepy diagnostics company making this sort of aggressive acquisition? The target was a company that had just lost a patent suit to Novartis, basically at the university that they both had licensed their IP from. Well, that was the problem. They, the university licensed the IP to both Novartis and to the target. But Lanthius was able to come in, install a proper litigation team, and win the appeal. And the cool thing about this diagnostic is that it is super effective for prostate cancer. And in tech, we like to look at things and say, if it's not 10x better, then it's probably not going to have uptake. And I, I don't think that's much different in, in medicine because people are trained on certain stuff and they don't necessarily want to adopt the new technology if it's not what they're comfortable with, unless it's obviously better. And in this case, it is. So the uptake has been pretty dramatic. The upside beyond there, you know, that, that was just a good capital allocation for them. I think they paid about $500 million for it. And I think it's going to do more than that this year in revenue. So very good capital allocation on their part. The additional upside is the ability to use that same methodology to deliver treatments to the cancer cells. And we look for really good companies that have sort of an asymmetric upside. So again, we like their cash flow from the existing business. The historic diagnostics are all stable, well-run businesses. This Polarify diagnostic for prostate cancer has upside in two directions, one in delivering treatments for prostate cancer and two in using as a diagnostic for other forms of cancer. So if either of those directions go well, then the investment ends up working out quite well, even from today's pricing. Right. Thanks. We've gone a couple minutes over. We had a lot more smoke in New York. You guys in San Diego, I don't imagine ever have this. We had a lot more smoke in New York earlier. A little better now, but I read one squib that said that New York had the worst air quality anywhere in the world, which isn't a uh, characteristic that we're very happy with. But hopefully the wind will come in off the ocean or do something and blow all the smoke away. 
with that, everyone be well and stay healthy, and we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. 